Welcome back to Stream Again, the podcast that brings you the maximum amount of streaming news and opinions. I am one of your hosts, Chris Barlow, and I am joined uh, after a very relaxing, extended Memorial Day break that we are sure you assumed we were going to take this whole time by my co-host, Diane Nora. How you doing, Diane? Feeling refreshed and ready to embrace the summer of strike? Oh, yeah. I'm, I'm ready for maximum content. Maximum content, but not in the uh, sense that there is a lot of it, because there won't be, but instead that it appears on a service with a complicated name that is both simple to say and somehow impossible to remember. It's Max, and we are here this week to talk all about... The Wabro, Wabro Disco Experience, there it is, uh, Warner Brothers Discovery finally completing their transition of HBO Max to just Max. And and along the way, we're going to talk about what's going on in some other Wabro Disco properties. There's just so much happening in the world of Wabro Disco that I, I think we'll listen to this one more time. And that means we're going to talk about what you can watch on Max, which means later this episode, we're going to discuss Clone High. Clone High, an animated comedy on Max that I recall from its original run on MTV in 2002. Wow, we're old. And speaking of people who feel old, we're going to talk about the cast and uh, creators and, you know, story of The Other Two. The Other Two, a show also on Max about uh, people in their 30s and beyond who are starting to feel perhaps uh, lost in their lives. A, A somewhat relatable experience. Why? I could never tell you. And you'll have to listen to find out when we talk about both of those shows just just a little later and then. A little later than that, we're going to give you a little bonus content because we are finally ready to uh, dish about the finale of Succession. And uh, we are sure if you care, you've had a lot of time to process that. So we're going to save that for the very, very end so you can just hear Diane and I both claim that we got it right. (laughs) And I did. And I did too. And you, listener, can decide for yourself and then tell us who really got it right by emailing podcast at streamageddon.com. But that's enough about that because we have to get right to some follow-up from the news. And, of course, the only thing we would be following up on right now is the writer's strike, which may eventually become even more than a writer's strike. But what will it not become? It will not become a director's strike, Diane. That's right. Uh, The Directors Guild reached an agreement with the AMPTP. Uh, It still needs approval from the membership, but it seems extremely likely that that will happen. And that will probably have happened by the time this episode is released, too. So. Yeah. And and my TLDR on the deal that they struck is the directors do not get much, except they get a way bigger cut of international residuals. My my read on it is they basically sacrificed most of the rest of their list in order to secure more residuals internationally, which, you know, with a lot of what we discuss on this show, I, I get the logic there. Um, that that international is where the growth is. International is where more streaming customers are waiting to be found. And you want the residuals from those viewers. I saw that they did get some AI protections, though we don't have the details of that yet. So, And I'm not sure what exactly that entails for a director, to be completely candid. So I'm wondering if that says anything about the direction that negotiations may at some point take 
for the other unions, but still too soon to say. Too soon, indeed, though if you'd like to read more about it, there's a link to The Hollywood Reporter in our show notes. Uh, But that brings us to the next union in strike news, which is SAG-AFTRA, the actors' union. And they have voted to authorize a strike with the same uh, kind of overwhelming numbers that the Writers Guild voted to authorize their own strike. Yeah, more than 97%, uh, which is really surprising for this group. I think even among members of the group, people were surprised by how high this ratio is, which is great. I think I think it is great. And we'll see what that means uh, in terms of actual negotiations, because uh, just a reminder, an authorization to strike does not mean they are on strike. It just means that they are going in hardball. Right. We probably won't know if they've if they're going to strike or if they've reached an agreement until the end of the month. So stay tuned. Stay tuned. As we are staying tuned to uh, the entertainment that is being constantly delayed now because of the strike, a a handful of interesting headlines that have collected over the last couple of weeks. Marvel is being affected. Terrible news. And in particular, uh, the movie Thunderbolts is being delayed by the writer's strike. And uh, while this one is maybe not at the top of uh, the name recognition list in the Marvel Universe, this is one I am actually excited about because it's the movie about all the, like, uh, knockoff Marvel characters. Like, the guy who sort of almost became the new Captain America, but then became, like, Agent America. Mr. Agent Man. Uh, And Julia Louis-Dreyfus is the mastermind of this group of Thunderbolts. And I loved her weird presence in, uh, what was that, Falcon and the Winter Soldier, Uh, the the perhaps least popular Marvel show. But I was there for it. She was also in the new Black Panther movie. Uh, Yeah, as they roll out her existence in the MCU. Yeah, and I thought that her brief moments in that were really entertaining. Uh, I, I'll watch this, probably, if it comes if out. If and when. Well, you know, <laughs> hold your breath. As we know, things went really badly in, in a lot of ways for the MCU during the pandemic. We had the Black Widow fiasco with Scarlett Johansson. The way that that upends their very carefully crafted interlocking stories. Any delay can just really throw them off. Uh, But the good news is people seem overloaded and sick of Marvel right now, so I guess a delay could be a silver lining, let's say. Perhaps. You know who is not feeling a silver lining right now? Uh, Another... Uh, I almost said pandemic-related headline. Oh, the, the, the flashbacks. It's horrible. The strike is affecting Deadpool 3. And what I had forgotten is that Ryan Reynolds has this weird role in the Deadpool movies where he's the star, he's a producer, and he gets writing credit because he improvises a ton of Deadpool's dialogue. And now they're in a position where they're filming Deadpool 3, but he's not allowed to improvise because that would be writing because he's credited as a writer. But he is allowed to act and produce in it. And these kind of headaches, especially in an era of multi-hyphenates where tons of people are writer-producers or actor-writer-producers, I I can't imagine how complicated it is to try to continue making something while also being on strike in one of your roles in that, you know, uh, product. Oh, yeah. Drawing a line between acting and improvising seems very tricky to me. You know, a lot of acting is improvising, even on something that's as polished a production as like a Deadpool with a massive budget. You know, I it just where you draw that line seems very, very murky. 
Yeah, and, and in a way, it could be like you know months or a year plus before we find out how that affected the movie. Like, there's a chance we go to see Deadpool three in the future, and it doesn't feel like Deadpool one and two because they couldn't embrace that spontaneity. We don't know. We it's just I found it to be such an interesting conundrum for an extremely talented person who also has a huge reputation on the line. Like I, you know, obviously many people would love to be Ryan Reynolds. But not today. No, though, at the same time, you'd think they would shut down production at this point. I would not think that. I would not (laughs) think that, Diane. (laughs) Money. And speaking of not shutting down production in lieu of uh, the looming uh, strikes, uh, another article, this was more of a tidbit I saw from an article. That's, you know, a way of saying I didn't read the whole article. But the return of I Think You Should Leave on Netflix resulted in a really weird anecdote. You saw this too, Diane, right? I did indeed. Great show, by the way. I love I Think You Should Leave. Hilarious. And clearly Netflix loves it too and really wanted Tim Robinson to get the season done before the strike hit. No pressure, Tim. No pressure. This anecdote he got, uh, Tim Robinson doesn't love to do press, but he agreed to do press uh, in an interview right before the writer's strike deadline, basically, where the interviewer essentially related the impression they got, which was that Tim Robinson and company seemed to be locked in the editing room with a gun proverbially pointed to their heads by the Netflix exec saying, finish it now, finish it, finish it now. And at the same time, Tim Robinson is one of those people who's definitely multi-hyphenate on the show. Absolutely. in almost every sketch. He is the head writer and also, I think, a producer on it as well. So, uh, you know, you can't. Again, a tough situation for an extremely talented person who normally I would say you're living the dream. But when you hear things like this, you remember it is not all, you know, fun and creativity in in the entertainment industry. Agreed. And also it makes me wonder about their process, because I would think for something like sketch where timing is so crucial, a lot of writing is done in the editing room. Yeah. Yeah. Even if you're not generating new content, it brings up thorny issues on what is the nature of writing. Absolutely. Which, boy, I would love to rip the bong and spend a night talking <laughs> about the nature of writing. We have we have so much else to get to that I'm going to push forward. And, you know, we are going to leave the strike in the rearview mirror for now. As always, we want to remind you. Writers, strike! is happening, and we will continue to inform you about the developments in the writer's strike and perhaps the sag after strike right here on Streamageddon. Tell your friends. But right now, we're going to make a a smooth transition to the beginning of our discussion about our good friends that used to be called HBO Max. And uh, that begins with a a little strike tangential note, let's say. Uh, One of the many odd developments in the launch of Max uh, is some changes in the Max app, an app that I have um, zero love for. Spoiler alert there. Uh, The Max app did a completely unnecessary thing where it took the credits for individual shows and movies where you might have a, I don't know, writer and a director and some producers all labeled for the things they did. And it just went, what if we treated this like it was a TikTok and called them all creators? Martin Scorsese, creator. 
That's just obviously a contract violation. How new to the entertainment industry would you have to be to think that people wouldn't notice that and that they wouldn't be livid? Uh, truly. And there was this was the only moment recently where I really thought the DGA, the Directors Guild, might strike in solidarity with the, the writers. If you're watching the, the strike news, the, the DGA was not likely to strike. They tend to get along much better with the producers. And the moment where I went, oh no, was when this creator thing dropped because the DGA sent a scathing public letter that aligned themselves with the WGA on this because, you know, the directors, they want to be credited for directing. I don't blame them for that. Uh, and just, again, to Diane's point, a complete contract violation on, on both sides, the WGA, the DGA, the idea that no lawyer stopped and went, well, guys, I understand it's easier this way, but we can't do it this way, blows my mind. There was a big kerfuffle and then many folks at Max in leadership positions said, oh, we hadn't realized that this change had been made and acted like it was some lower level person who made this choice, which realistically, that is not the truth. People, I am going to call baloney sandwiches on that. That is nonsense. They knew and they did it to antagonize. I'm almost certain. Yeah, like you had to have a review at some point where an executive who is on the, the Wabro Disco side heard the pitch that we are going to take the credits that were previously separated and squish them in to a single thing. And maybe that pitch was, it'll be cheaper this way. I fully believe if the answer is, the pitch was, this is cheaper. And somebody went, I love it. Green light. With no thought to what it actually meant. Clearly, there was not a contract lawyer in that room when it was greenlit. Like, just no chance in hell. Uh, as someone who has spoken with and worked with some corporate lawyers in another part of my life, zero chance in hell a lawyer was involved in that discussion. Yeah, that was foolish. Uh, call in counsel. Yeah. Yeah, and the kicker is not just did they blame the, the app developers. They now are saying it's going to take them an extended, unknown period of time to resolve this issue, which is code for they didn't make the new database. Like, they didn't put the correct credits on the correct people's names, even internally. And so now they have to go back and recode the app and rebuild that database, which, to be clear, is a database they already had in the existing app. Right. There's just, this was a own goal. What Deep, were they deeply, thinking? Deeply a moment of what were they thinking. But you know, that's not the only moment in the Wabro Disco universe where you are going to wonder, what were they thinking? And you know, that means before we transition to a lovely discussion about Max and the content on Max itself, we have to take a little detour to Hudson Yards, a beautiful neighborhood in Manhattan that no actual resident of Manhattan will ever set foot in, because we need to talk about... This is CNN. Drama at CNN. 
which we will remind you is somehow owned by Discovery now. Really fun time to be alive. Uh, CNN, of course, not part of Max, not even really part of streaming since the first thing Discovery did when they bought Warner Brothers was kill CNN+. Plus. <sighs> Fond memories of CNN+, Plus in the five minutes it existed. Uh, but if you are not, uh, obsessed with the media in the sad, sad way we are, then I have great news for you. We are about to share something with you because The Atlantic ran what has to be a uh, a career-making for the writer and career-ruining for the subject profile of CNN chief Chris Licht last weekend. And, oh, oh, wow, Diane, how, how did you feel processing this tome, this novella of sadness and self-defeat? I felt vindicated, I have to say, <laughs> though I also felt a full body cringe, just um, my eyeballs rolling back in my head trying to save me from what I was reading. Uh, it's rough. I did have a, a friend read it who said, oh, I, I knew that you would like this story because you're always talking about how he's messing up on your podcast. <laughs> and uh, and and we may be. Uh, sorry, Chris. Part of Licked, I mean. <laughs> Not sorry. <laughs> sorry, Chris Licked. I started feeling really bad for him because he just keeps messing himself up more and more and more and it's hard to watch someone do that and i found it was really helpful to have recently watched succession and to have that little trick in my brain to think yes you empathize with this suffering human but at the same time this suffering human is uh enabling fascists and yeah. it's okay <laughs> that they're suffering yeah, I got to say, big Kendall Roy vibes in this profile. And that is probably the worst Roy vibes to get from your your <laughs> blockbuster profile. Uh, this was... Uh, so the, the nature of this story is that the reporter was embedded with him for a year for full access, which uh, I think even a non-industry person would say, that sounds like a mistake on the surface. The... Uh, Axios did some background on this. We'll have some links in the show notes, including, of course, the link to the full piece. Uh, but it is long. So if you prefer the TLDR, we've got some Axios links in the show notes. And Axios said that basically the reporter asked uh, to be embedded with Licked, and they said no. Uh, good answer. And then the reporter said, well, I'm going to do the piece regardless. So you can either play ball with me or not. And the answer still should have been, well, enjoy writing your piece without access to the people you're writing about. But instead they went, okay, sure. Sure, you want to spend a year with Chris Licht? A year embedded with this man as he goes to his personal trainer in the morning and does like squats and deadlifts while saying that former CNN chief Jeff Zucker could never do this and getting quoted on the record as saying that, which is both insulting to Jeff Zucker, who many people at CNN are still very loyal to, and one of the most pathetic things he could have said at the same, it's both insulting to Zucker and to Licht himself. That he would even think this is funny, and I'm giving him the benefit of the doubt that he meant it as a joke, which I do not think is necessarily the case. It appears from the piece that at CNN Licked is, and within Wabro Disco 
at large, he's becoming really isolated and losing a lot of his allies, um, which he had few to begin with. So that's not good. Uh, so I think that he made the mistake of confiding in the journalist as if it were a friend or a therapist. And, um, you know, watch Almost Famous, guys. This is not the move. It's not, not how you move. do it. No, it no. is not. There is just too many really sad, strange, uh, uh, cringy anecdotes to draw out. Uh, but the, the the framing that I thought was really effective and really debilitating uh, to Lick's you know, public image was largely around the Trump town hall, which was an unmitigated disaster for CNN. It did not really do well in the ratings. And then their ratings went down afterwards. They they, they lost viewership overall for the boondoggle. And you could tell in the recounting of it in the article that Lick knew it didn't go well, but is was yeah. trying to hold a, a strong face, you know, in, in front of the troops. But that is just one of many moments where he took a big swing and a big miss. And, you know, again, to the credit of the piece, it's not a hit job. The, the writer even says, you know, when Lick slows down and talks about his, you know, uh, vision of how journalism could be better, especially cable news journalism, which is, you know, to be fair, pretty toxic. Uh, the, the writer's like, I, I can see that. I can I can mm-hmm. agree with him in theory, but his actions always botch the execution. Yeah, time and time again. The, one of the anecdotes that really kind of broke me emotionally was um, when they're talking about the dinner that they had in which um, he has this opportunity to do some of the socializing, the smoothie, smoothing things over with CNN talent uh, that we discussed on the podcast previously, he didn't really do when he, you know, took the reins. Uh, and instead of doing that, he spends the whole dinner on his phone reading negative press about himself in, in puck. puck. In puck. That's like, I mean, <laughs> dude. Dude, I loved that anecdote because, one, he travels down to D.C. for that. He's, like, at a big party for CNN's D.C. reporters, people you want to schmooze and show face with because you're you're not usually there with them. You're usually up in New York. So, like, go, be the boss, introduce yourself, make peace with these people who are skeptical of you and the direction you're taking the network. And he spends so much time on his phone that people at the party thought that he might be dealing with an international crisis. But In a way, puck. he was. <laughs> like, okay, sure. Yeah, yeah. Dylan Byers, international crisis extraordinaire. It, it's it's hard, and you know that Zaslav got word of this before it it hit because uh, literally the day before the article dropped, Warner Brothers Discovery named a new chief operating officer for CNN who happens to be a David Zaslav loyalist and will be taking over public relations immediately if reports are are to be believed, which I I think we can believe them in this one. I literally do not know if Chris Licht will still have a job by the time this episode comes out, which is in like less than 72 hours. I think that if unless he quits, he'll keep this job because yeah. I the don't know. real villain in the story is not Zaslav. Chris Lick. No, you're you're both you're you're right. Listen, but I think that's why <laughs> if Zaz is the true villain of the CNN story, he will axe Licked. He will blame the failures of the last year on Licked and install a loyalist. And we're part way to that with a new COO. But that also might be something where we wait and see if uh, Licked quits on his own accord. Sure. 
I mean, he had his friend at the at the helm. It was Jeff Zucker who was friends with Zaz, and he fired his friend. I mean, with cause, but he fired his friend and put in, you know, another buddy from the Hamptons. And this is the the spot that we're in. I don't know. Maybe reach out of beyond your social circle. Uh, there are people who aren't extraordinarily wealthy white men who might be able to give you some needed perspective here. I know. And, uh, and deep irony there that one of the many controversial, stupid things Chris Licht said in this piece was him recounting a, a, a speech he'd given about diversity in the workplace that had upset the diversity in the workplace team at CNN, where he said, you know, and again, I'm basically quoting Chris Licht here. If you have like an Asian woman and a black man and a white man and they all graduated from Harvard, that's not diversity. And in a way... That is true. But in a way, you just described the exact same thing, which is David Zaslav just going through his Rolodex of White Hamptons men and picking another one to be in charge. And that, you know, listen, there are definitely a grand gradient, a scale of diversity. I would say the uh, a binder full of Hamptons men is at the very, very far end of not diverse. Just absolutely not there. But here, here are the white men trying to claim, no, no, the diversity the way you've been doing it is wrong. And you may have some points, but you are definitely making them in the worst possible way. Yeah, he can't seem to help himself truly stunning how many times he sticks his foot in his mouth on the record and then agrees to spend more time with this reporter. Uh, and, and there's the looming aspect that there's somebody from like CNN PR at many of these meetings with him. And occasionally Licht will ramble on in a nonsense answer that I truly don't understand that is quoted verbatim in the article. And then the, the handler from CNN will go, well, you know, what he meant was that he would never, you know, want to be the subject of attention unless he was defending his reporters. And I'm like, that is that what he meant? Because it's not any of the words that just came out of his weird mouth. No. Uh, bravo to Tim Alberta of The Atlantic on this piece. It's a really fascinating read, even if you're not obsessed with this stuff. It made me it made me contrast it with um, the Bella Bajaria profile that was yeah. in The New Yorker at the beginning of the year and just how it really humanized her. And even though I don't agree with all of the things that she wants to do at Netflix, it just made her seem like this fascinating um energized human who you could see why they were having success in their field uh, versus this licked profile, which just kind of felt like that car accident you can't keep your eyes off of. Truly, truly. And that is CNN. Uh, but of course, as things happen there and to Mr. Licht himself, we'll tell you more. That's just one piece of the entire Wabro Disco puzzle. Uh, and the looming question of, do they really just want to flip CNN and sell them to someone else? Because CNN's streaming rights are really difficult to work with. The whole reason CNN Plus was a, a weird mutant that got killed the second it emerged from the bowels of the earth uh, is that they don't have the rights to stream CNN because the cable companies would apparently show up with pitchforks saying, kill the beast. So instead, they have to like kind of renegotiate, figure out how can they rebroadcast anything. There are 
rumors they want to try to get some CNN content onto Max, but how? And will anyone care or want to watch it unless it's Stanley Tucci eating something delicious? I don't know. I don't know either, but it does all come back to streaming, doesn't it? It always does. And you know where you can stream just so many of these things that are not CNN? Well, you can stream them on the Max app, of course. Uh, and that, that, you know, before we talk about what you can stream on the Max app, just how are you feeling, Diane? The Max app. It's here. It's Maximum. It kicked off a bunch of people who were apparently sharing my Max plan this whole time, and I didn't know it. Honestly, I didn't have much trouble with the app, like with switching over to a new app. I was lucky in that regard. Um, I've had some difficulty with some of my other streaming apps of late, Paramount Plus. <laughs> uh, and so uh, it, it hasn't seemed that painful. What has been quite frustrating to me is the discourse around it. I just feel that they did a very bad job of getting the word out about what this change means, because I keep seeing people and hearing people say, can you believe they got rid of HBO? And I'm like, wait a minute. No, no, no. no. So just to clarify, um, HBO is still HBO. Uh, if you subscribe to HBO, you can you can continue watching it on your TV. Uh, you can stream HBO on Max. The only thing that is gone is HBO Max, yes. the streaming platform, not the network. The network yes. HBO is still alive and well. Okay, thank you. Just had to say it. I had to. Uh, I, I think it needs to be said because the 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 they killed HBO discourse is killing me because they they did yes. not. They actively did not. The real discourse that we should be having is Max is a dumb name, and the app is worse than the HBO Max app. And the HBO Max app was bad when it launched. That's true. But they had years of actually working on it to make it halfway decent. And and in many uh, cases, at least on the platform I use to watch my streaming, the Max app got a lot better. Was it my favorite app? No, none of the streaming apps are my favorite apps. They're all garbage. But it was near the top of the garbage heap. And now it is once again buried deep inside, decomposing, uh, with an interface that just drives me nuts because it'll do things like on one screen, let's say you're looking at a whole season of a show, pressing and holding on your remote button will add that show to your watch list. But on another screen where you're looking at your watch list, pressing and holding that button will erase the show from your watch history and I'm like no I wanted to see more episodes I was trying to get into that show I, it just it has an internal logic that no other app seems to have and they like streamlined the sections to the point where there's only three sections which is like all the junk HBO and my junk and I'm like okay but there's what where do I find the max originals where can I look by genre where is what's a movie like well, who chose to distill it to three extremely broad categories? Like the, I just, it, it is in every way worse than the previous app. I have seen zero indication it, it is an improvement on any front whatsoever. Yeah, I I would agree with that. It's definitely a step backward, and I hope that they can fix some of those things in terms of user experience because it's just uh, there's too much content out there to make watching the content harder i will just give up and you know listen to a great podcast oh, uh so, so good. um but i do think that it could have been worse i i guess that's, sure. that's sort of my like like i don't have that much trouble navigating it um i think that it may be worse 
depending on what you use to watch your apps. Yeah, like what um, so like if you're using a Fire yeah. Stick or you know a PlayStation or a Roku, depends what you're using. Um, so I I think that I've heard that it's particularly bad on some. Which again, they had plenty of time to figure that out. They could have also not done the release yeah. so soon. So soon, I it mean, seems like they wanted to set it around succession ending. That was my which assumption. Was weird move. Yeah, they claim no, and other people will say, I bet it's just a coincidence, but I cannot accept that logic, because they forced it right before the season series finale of both Succession and Barry. And if you'd seen the, like, bus ads and subway ads here in New York, they definitely featured the Succession, uh, you know, season four all-cast promo shot very prominently in a lot of them to say, Max is coming, where you can watch this. Uh, and nice. I, I think that was to say to the HBO crowd, we know you think we're killing HBO, so we're going to force you to switch over to the Max app for your your biggest HBO desires right before the biggest night of your HBO life outside of the Game of Thrones universe. Uh, and, and okay, strategically I get that. It's to force the HBO crowd to realize that Max is HBO. But man, that is... I, I honestly think part of the reason they have the bad credits thing and things like that is I think they just rushed it. I think they had an arbitrary yeah. deadline based on something that, again, I logically understand, but I think is a stupid reason to rush it and did not, to your point earlier, convince people that HBO is alive and well. They failed Where in that fundamental task. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you work in entertainment. You got to tell the story. Well, you know, the they're, they're mostly into like... More. We we don't tell stories here. We point cameras at sharks and houses, and stories just happen. Yeah, <laughs> that's <laughs> they discovery. Sure but that's not the only thing you can see on Max. We have so many great things to talk about that you can watch on Max. So that means it is time for us to get to our first review. We're going to talk about two very funny shows, and I think shows that you can listen to our thoughts on without having too much spoiled for you. In particular, the first one is a ridiculous uh, animated cartoon about clones. So join us, won't you, as we talk about the other two in a little bit. And first, Clone High on HBO, now on Max. Yes, Clone High, an animated comedy that if you are as ancient as I am, you might remember from its original run in 2002 on MTV. This is a show that you uh, might have some relation to if you've heard of the Lego movie or the other works of Phil Lord and Christopher Miller, or perhaps you've heard of the works of a, a man named Bill Lawrence of Scrubs and other fame. Uh, these men created Clone High, a very strange, very early 2000s-ish uh, teen high school drama comedy satire uh, that revolves around a plot that can best be summarized by me just um, speak singing a piece of the theme song. So if you're new to Clone High, I'm just reading you the lyrics of the current theme song, and I feel like it captures the premise. <clears throat> uh, way, way back in the 1980s, secret government employees dug up famous guys and ladies, made amusing genetic copies. Then the clones as teens were frozen, thought out decades later, why... Well, facts and reasons, not disclosing, giving high school another try. Mm. 
If that doesn't just warm your heart with teen angst, I don't know what will. And if you didn't fully get the plot, that doesn't super matter. Nope. Once they're like two minutes in and chatting, you'll figure it out. Yep. The basic premise is it was a one-season animated show 20 years ago where the season finale of a high school full of clones of famous people, they all go to prom and get frozen. And then then the show got canceled. (laughs) And 20 years later, it is back on Max. And so the plot is they've been frozen for 20 years and now they're being thawed out and returning to high school where there are new clones from the past 20 years. Again, all the clones are of famous people. And so now there's a bit of a generational thing. We have the millennial clones from the original series in high school with these Gen Z clones and together they're going through high school things together. But if you're someone of a certain age like we are, there is a bit of humor in comparing the generational differences. And I think that is the strongest compliment I could give the reboot in particular. I love the original, uh, but I, I, I would be lying to you if I said it was an incredibly intelligent, groundbreaking show. It's not. But what I think justifies the return of it is that they have a new angle to explore. And I have been having, at least in the first few episodes, we both watched the first three for review, I've been having some fun just watching them play with that. Yeah, I agree with that. Though I will say the generational divide that I was thinking of is this show feels so deeply Gen X to me. Well, the creators are really Gen X. And if you if you do a little light Googling, you'll see that they originally came up with this idea in the 90s and they were pitching it to Fox before it got uh, greenlit at MTV. So it actually does have a very Dawson's Creek vibe. And And then it's just filtered through a little bit now of, well, if we look back, we realize that those clones were actually millennials. So we're retconning a bit of the tone of the original. But I I 100% agree. The show has a lot of old school MTV Gen X humor and angst, which honestly, I miss a little bit. I agree. It uh, brought up some memories of Daria, a show I love. Yeah. Uh, In the like oh, this is the popular kid and I'm an outcast thing, you know, which doesn't really mirror my high school experience. But I'm glad that, you know, where there was like that much stratification, it feels kind of like an 80 or 90s teen movie. But I have, you know, seen enough of those that I can compare it to that. And it's really uh, that part of the nostalgia I find really charming. Yeah, same. And the cast is just a bunch of lovable goofballs at the end of the day. We have, from the original run, Abe Lincoln, played by Will Forte. And his, uh, you know, his deep, deep desire is his love of Joan of Arc, who is kind of a goth kid in the original run and not popular. But one of the my favorite twists of the reboot is that uh, in the past 20 years, being like an angsty goth kid who's interested in social justice now makes you extremely popular. And so she's gone from being the outcast to being the most popular girl in school. And she's gone from being, you know, kind of uh, uh, Abe Lincoln's best friend, but they're stuck in the friend zone, to actually being sort of this unattainable object because she's dating the most popular guy in school, who of course is JFK. JFK has a lot of really funny moments, I have to say. Um, At first, when he started with his really ridiculous but spot-on accent, I was like, ooh, is this going to be grating 
It's not. No, it's really it is funny. not. It, it is. That accent is like an 11 on uh, out of 10, and it is never grading, even though in all objectiveness, it should get graded at a certain point. It's also worth mentioning, JFK is played by Christopher Miller, uh, who is you know, a, a core part of the show, to say the least, as a creator. And uh, you can sense his deep, deep understanding of the tone of the show in JFK's writing and performance. Even And that's not a knock against anyone else's performance, but you can really feel in a lot of ways, even though I, I think the original run, you would say Abe Lincoln is the protagonist. In the new season, no one is really the one protagonist, and JFK is much more central in my mind. In a great way, too. I just, I'm so happy to see that, too. In a way, the jock from your high school days is now dealing with the fact that he has to act a little different, but also all the ways that he's like a, a horny, misogynistic monster comes off as being sex positive, and so everyone loves him. <laughs> Yeah, I liked that bit. I liked that bit a lot. Um, I did. I do like some of the new characters, too. I yeah. think that um, Iowa Debris, who folks might know from The Bear, is on the new season, and she plays Harriet Tubman. Uh, I really love and identify with this character. She's very anxious. She uh, has fears in the third episode. They talk about her fear of becoming, like, a basic wine mom and I felt that so fully yeah. um so I think that it does seem like they're also working on diversifying the cast and also just bringing in new younger voices which I, I appreciate yeah uh, they also bring in Kelvin Yu as uh, Confucius and Vicky Martinez as Frida Kahlo and I gotta say the uh, Confucius hasn't had a ton to do yet he's been a bit of a buddy for JFK and I like the character but uh, they the few, first few episodes of the season haven't been really uh, Confucius heavy let's say but they have had a ton of Frida and Harriet and they are great they are basically like the president and vice president of the student council uh, and so there's a lot of presence with them welcoming the new clones but also making sure that the new clones kind of fit in and there is some really funny stuff around just honestly the way language and cultural mores have really changed in the last 20 years and as somebody who went to high school in the early 2000s I found a lot of it um, both relatable and horrifying a whole scene that involves the words that used to be extremely common in a high school cafeteria like so and so is retarded and of course you would not say that today if you have any decency in you. But uh, Abe Lincoln just tosses it out there because he's still in 2003. He just got thawed. And everyone's appalled, as, again, they should be. But there are moments like that where I go, wow, the show has a, a finger on a pulse that is hard to put your finger on, which is these kind of cancel culture topics that do scare, I think, a lot of creators because how do you address it without being cringy? How do you make fun of it appropriately? And at least so far, the show has only touched that when it feels relevant to the characters, which is the right answer. And it's been funny when they've done it. I agree. And it didn't feel at all like oh, can you believe these kids nowadays are obsessed with canceling people? Which I think is a take I've just heard a lot of times. We could 
No, another I, show I, can I, discuss the merits I, of the take, but like it's just tired in comedy, and I felt like this was a very fresh way of looking at it. Yeah, I, I think that's a great point because uh, the way that I felt those scenes hitting was, oh my god, Abe, shut up, Abe, you can't, you shouldn't say that. Not that you can't, you shouldn't. It's 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 mean, it's cruel, it's unnecessary, and that's how people respond to him when he does, and and he kind of learns from that a bit. Uh, one of the other new characters that he has to learn that from is a, a clone of Christopher Columbus who goes by Topher Bus because he doesn't want to get canceled, which could have been a giant mistake. When that was described in the the pre uh, the pre premiere press, I was like, I don't know what they're doing with that. But the way it unfolds, Topher Bus is a like a horrible incelly person. Like you actually mm-hmm. do want to cancel him as a just an objective viewer, which works. It just works in the way that he both cautions Abe against getting canceled, but then shows that the people who are so obsessed with the risk of getting canceled, that's a red flag that there's something wrong with them that would result in them perhaps one day getting canceled. Agreed. Yeah. Yeah. I was I I was also concerned when I when I figured out who he was, but he's had some really funny moments and I like the way that they've engaged with the flip-flop the fake tiktok yes <laughs> app that they they use it's um that that they got some pretty good jokes out of that too yeah i gotta say like overall i think they nailed the tone of what a modern high school animated comedy would be like that it feels it does not feel dated or like they are assuming weird things about the social media culture of our times that aren't true i you know in a way the risk is you know tiktok gets banned in a year this app that flip-flop will feel very strange but okay then if they get renewed they can write an episode about that they they've nailed the modern high school tone uh again for a ridiculous comedy about clones who have been brought back by shadowy government figures who want to groom them to be future world leaders. And also, there's like a woman with a lot of lizards. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. There sure is. I do think it could stay at this level and be a funny, entertaining show. I do think there is room for growth, though, too. And so I'd be excited to see, like, over the course of a season or of second season, if it gets picked up, what they could accomplish in terms of, uh, you know, really saying something with this form, even if it's not, like, after school special. It seems like they're circling around a strong point of view, and I'm excited to see where they land. Same. And and as a fan of the original, I had both a lot of enthusiasm coming into the new season and a lot of anxiety that I, I would realize that it was never as good as I thought it was. Because I haven't watched an episode of Clone High in probably a decade. And so the fact that it's back and feels both true to the original, but fresh and with room to grow is really impressive. And the kind of thing that is uh, extremely hard to do with any revival, as we've talked many times about reboots and revivals and and the other R series types, uh, this is totally a revival. And it's absolutely helped by the fact that they're animated characters, so you can story-wise pick up exactly where you left off and then toss them in a blender and do anything new you want to do with them. And that's working. It makes me... to, to. to make a tangential point here, it makes me cautiously optimistic about the reboot of Futurama, which is another show near and dear to my heart in the same kind of like early 2000s animated sitcom world. 
Yeah, and another show that there's going to be really high expectation for. Oh, yeah, <laughs> um, to say the least. So Yeah, to say the least. But, you um, know, speaking of shows that I had a high expectation for the new season of, we want to talk about what else is on Max. And there are so many good shows on Max. And once again, some of them seem to be refugees from other networks, such as The Other Two. You, you see what I did there, Diane? You see how I did that? You see that? Was, was that good? I loved it. Oh, Nailed thank you it. so much. Thank you. I felt like Streeter getting something right for once. Uh, and that is, of course, a character on The Other Two, a series that originally aired on Comedy Central, where it was swiftly renewed because it was actually kind of a hit when it originally aired on Comedy Central in the year 2018, I want to say? January 2019. So, like, okay, short 2019, you can technically say. Uh, and it got renewed, but then it got ditched by Comedy Central. And so the second season was an early HBO Max original. And then it got renewed, but the pandemic happened, and the Wabro Disco uh, merger happened. And so now they're back for their third season four plus years after the premiere of the first season and they're a max original just max it works i gotta say it works they're survivors they're true survivors in the best possible way and if you've somehow never seen an episode of the other two let me tell you first of all you should watch all of them it is one of my favorite shows on television but also it's a show that essentially comes from a simple premise that i love which is to uh you know like a 29 year old woman and her early 30 somethings brother uh they are struggling in tangentially artistic ways in their lives uh, carrie the brother is trying to be an actor in new york brooke the sister was a dancer growing up but then as you if you've ever known any dancers in your life as you have heard she stopped dancing in her 20s and hasn't danced since. And what is she and what does she do now? They're having those moments in their lives at the beginning of season one of the other two when their younger brother, 13-year-old Chase Dreams, gets discovered <laughs> through a viral TikTok. And this truly, re-watching the pilot, I was like, oh my God, this show was prescient. In 2019, they absolutely nailed the culture of today. The the premiere of the other two feels like it's set now, with the only complicated factor being uh, Hoda and Kathy Lee are no longer both on the Today Show. But otherwise, like, I, I don't know, could have been this year. And, and to round it all out, Chase becomes a viral sensation and, and goes along for the ride with his mother, played by Molly Shannon, God's gift to comedy on uh, high-end cable these days. Please... Please bring back I Love This For You. Please. I'm begging Please. you. Please. But if we can't have I Love This For You, we at least have more Molly Shannon on the other two because as Chase becomes a, a sensation, she winds up becoming a hugely successful daytime talk show host. And in one of my favorite pivots in all of television history, season one of the other two ends with Chase singing at the VMAs where the world discovers that he cannot sing for the first time ever. 
And we briefly think that Carrie and Brooke and all of the Dubeck family are going to go back to their lives as ordinary people. It seems like this whole flirtation with celebrity and fame was going to be a one-season kind of hallucination and that the show was going to reground itself in these struggling elder millennials, which was such a, a, honestly, as a struggling elder millennial, such a gripping intro to the show uh, at the beginning of the season. But that is when we pan back at the end of the first season to see Pat Dubeck now on a billboard in Times Square as the host of Daytime's Pat, which becomes the central subject for most of season two as Pat becomes a like bigger than Ellen level daytime star. I love it. It's such a good ensemble cast. Uh, Briefly mentioned, uh, Chase's agent, Streeter, is maybe my favorite part of the show, played by uh, podcast favorite Ken Marino in just a wonderfully derpy performance. (laughs) Just... It's it's so goofy. So good. And they do so much with Streeter over the the course of the show. He initially has uh, your your initial impression of him is going to be, oh, my God, this man wants to sleep with the 13 year old boy he's managing. But it evolves into such a better cringy place when you realize he's in love with Pat and then him and Pat become an item. But they're they're an item that is deeply mismatched at the same time. And he still has this weird affection for Chase. And then, as Chase becomes kind of a less successful uh, entity, let's say, when people realize he can't sing, you also see Streeter begin to kind of get desperate and look for other talent to save his career. He's pulled in so many different directions, but in classic Ken Marino fashion, he has, like, no mask. You always see exactly how Streeter feels. I love it. He's so funny. And he and Molly Shannon play off each other just beautifully um their scenes are especially great um which is not to say that the rest of the cast isn't also first rate i just like have a special love for them both but uh i i agree with that pivot and i think another change that they made that really works for me is um in the first season i think um the the main two characters the siblings uh carrie and brooke are kind of awful people and um it almost has a vibe like always sunny especially with some of brooks plot lines where it's just like you know or even like seinfeld where they're kind of amoral people um trying to clamor to success in new york and then in later seasons there's actually a lot of love and sweetness among the family members and it's just that the entertainment industry is so toxic and awful that it brings out this horrendous side of people so it's not just that they're horrible people it's more like a biting satire and that to me works really beautifully yeah we we were talking quite a lot about this uh, because we both love it in in the run-up to recording and one of the most notable changes if you've been watching the show for all three seasons is it's gotten increasingly surreal and a little absurdist in some of the plot lines and devices they use but in a way that feels good as somebody who loves these characters because it begins to take the onus off of their horrible choices and shifts it to what a horrible absurdist world that they're in which makes it funnier 
and does not rob it of the stakes. I think a great example from season three is Brooke's arc. She uh, discovers in season two that she wants to be a manager and she wants to manage uh, initially musicians and then she settles on managing Pat. And she's Pat's manager, and she's very successful, but she's exhausted, and it's a grueling job, and she uh, is clearly sacrificing something for a dream of something she thinks she wants, but she's not sure. In season three, we have a, a bit of a time jump because of the pandemic. They acknowledge the pandemic happened. I think they do it really effectively and in a way that helps leap the characters ahead. And in this time, her boyfriend, who we have to talk about, Lance, played by the just undeniably funny everywhere he appears, Josh Segura. Lance, who spends the first two seasons as a guy who works at Foot Locker and draws pictures of sneakers, then stumbles his way into being a legitimate fashion designer and has a giant fashion show and reunites with Brooke in the process and they rekindle their love. And then in the course of the pandemic, he quits and becomes a nurse. And there is a big thread for Brooke launched off of that about how all these other people in her life reassessed their lives during the pandemic and chose to do good in the world. And now Brooke feels guilty for being in the industry and wants to do good. But as any longtime viewer of the show or even somebody who watches a five-minute clip of Brooke will go... I don't think you really want to do good. I think you want to be praised for doing good in the same way you want to be praised for being a good manager. That it's the same black hole in her heart, so to speak, is driving her to, to quote-unquote, do good, which causes her to wrestle with leaving the industry, which is a deeply satisfying through line for me because it culminates in some extremely absurdist comedy she goes to an industry party it happens to be ellen's birthday but don't worry ellen's not attending so it's okay for everyone to go a recurring joke that i cannot <laughs> cannot get over uh and she goes there and she realizes people in the industry cannot see people who are not in the industry at these parties there are people there who are literally invisible not figuratively invisible literally invisible and when she leaves the industry she becomes invisible and no one at the party can see her which culminates in like a wanda sykes talking to a ghost scene because wanda sykes plays shuli who is chase's publicist and pat's publicist and works uh, very closely with brooke uh, and uh, all of that, hilarious, goofy, off the wall, watching like somebody hold an invisible wine glass, or rather an invisible hand hold a wine glass in midair while Brooke tries to talk to them and get them to name drop celebrities so that their arm will appear and then their shoulder will appear so that she can see them as someone in the industry. Really funny. And then they like twist the knife at the end because Brooke you know, demands to be seen again, basically says, I'll come back to the industry. But then she's not sure. And Wanda Sykes chews her out because Shuli is in the industry. And Shuli has a deep respect for the work that they do. Or at the very least, Shuli has a deep respect for herself. And what Brooke is doing is saying, not just, do I not respect myself, Brooke? I feel like I'm not a good person. She's saying, I don't respect any of you. And I don't think the work you're doing is worthwhile. And on a hilarious, absurdist comedy, Shuli drops the mic and tells Brooke off for it in, in a really brutal but short moment. And that is 
honestly so earned, so impressive to me. Mm -hmm. I think every moment where I go, wow, I can't believe they're doing X this season is followed up by a really grounded character beat that makes me go, oh, I'm appreciating the darkness maybe even more than I did before because the hilarity is so much wackier in contrast. And the only show that comes to mind immediately that achieves the same thing, especially in the kind of uh, Hollywood genre, is BoJack Horseman. Agreed. One of my favorite shows of all time. Same. And it is high praise to say you're in your your third season and you've hit BoJack Horseman in season three levels of, of quality. Every season of this show is great, and every season of BoJack Horseman is great, and both of them, as they got surer in their footing, just raised the the, the stakes on themselves, raised the bar on themselves in a way that I never would have expected, and in a way that became increasingly experimental, and this season continues. There is a whole episode where Carrie does a Pleasantville. You know the movie Pleasantville? (laughs) Who could who could forget the movie Pleasantville? Though I imagine the answer is many, many people. A lot of people. It's the one where they get sucked into a 1950s TV show that's black and white, and then they start seeing things in color. And the people who they infect with their wild modern ideas see things in color. And so in the other two, Carrie gets cast on a, as a guest role on a courtroom procedural called Emily Overruled. <laughs> it's... Which is obviously like a a Dick Wolf parody. Yeah. Uh, Judging Amy is what I took from that. Oh, sure. Oh, yeah. yeah. Uh, And and as soon as he steps onto the soundstage to film, everything goes black and white. And then they get into this whole plot arc that really went so much further than I, I ever expected about how he wants to, you know, make acting choices, maybe step out from behind the desk and maybe move off his mark. And everyone is shocked and appalled at these radical ideas. But one by one, the actors start coming to his trailer asking him like what is a choice and how do i make one and then they begin to see things in color and they begin to have elements of color on them and and admittedly the uh visual effects necessary do feel a little visual effectsy sometimes when i'm watching like an a completely black and white grayscale actor in front of a vivid color room but it, it works and as a plot device as a storytelling device i found it visually very effective and then very funny when they built up to the main character emily of emily overruled going in to try to shut it down and then getting sucked in herself when he says you know an actor who's been on a show as the main character this long would always want to direct i think you could direct and then she loses it Full, full, you know, uh, when Harry met Sally Pye scene over the idea of directing. It's really interesting to me uh, how, again, prescient this show was because these conversations about like the roles of actors in the industry right now feel like what we're talking about in the strike. Though, of course, this was written, you know, more than a year ago. So uh, I love that, too. They're really like on the pulse of something. And I think even if you're not someone who works in TV or film or like closely follows this stuff, uh, the jokes are so frequent that even if you're not catching every pop culture reference, you'll still just have a blast with it. Um, Yeah. It has a joke per minute ratio that reminds me of 30 Rock, but with mm -hmm. a tone that reminds me of something more prestige and darker like BoJack. 
or Barry even. Yeah, not early Barry. Early Barry. Early yeah. Barry. Yeah, absolutely. Not late Barry, but early Barry. Yeah. <laughs> Um, which again has some great industry satire that I just love. Um, another thing that I really like about this show is um, how unabashedly gay it is. Uh, yeah. I I really like that there's um, a range of gay characters. It's not uh, just trying to um, totally show like gay characters always in a positive light like there's also a lot of satire poking fun at gay men in new york especially and i think those also land really well um i don't know i i find it hilarious and refreshing same i there's some great moments in this uh, current season where carrie uh played by drew tarver uh, and he is gay yes uh, uh he gets offered uh, a role as the first gay out disney animated character <laughs> in called globby the glob and uh, truly i should say this show created by two of the former writers from snl they know how to walk right up to the limit of like fair use and parody and satire in a brilliant way that really must come from a background in sketch comedy and in in particular like you know network sketch comedy where the lawyers are over your shoulder because they have this whole disney plot line with the disney logo and a fake disney movie and it it is the plot line of what happened with Lightyear last summer, with the giant gay kiss that mm-hmm. was not heard around the world because, one, the movie wasn't good, and two, the scene was really watered down and nobody cared. And the exact same thing happens with Globby, but with the added element being that uh, Carrie has embraced the role of Globby and uh, kind of anointed himself a gay icon. And all of his gay New York friends have no idea who who the globby is it's it's so outside their realm of interest or caring and uh that all kind of culminates in one of my favorite but saddest plot lines they're exploring this season which is uh, a gay friendship carrie and his uh best friend as far as we know curtis played by the excellent brandon scott jones who you may know from ghosts god we love him Uh. Um, Curtis, one of the first characters you meet in the first season, he and Carrie, their uh, gay friendship is a core relationship in the show. And as a gay man in New York with gay friends, that's not something you see that often, the like kind of realistic, real world gay friendships that occur. And uh, the direction they're going this season is that that friendship is being destroyed by Carrie. And it is so sad and so hard to watch in a really good way. Agreed. Yeah, it um, has a lot of resonances. Is like, you know, when people are at different points in their careers and, um, you know, there's some resentment forming between them. But really, it seems like, you know, in a lot of ways, Carrie has been the more successful one, even if he always feels like he's not. Um but he makes assumptions about Curtis being jealous or... Um, well, he's like projecting in a lot of the cases. Yes, absolutely. He's projecting. And so he's just destroying this friendship with a lack of appreciation. Uh, I do hope that they can manage to salvage that because Curtis is one of my favorite characters and their comedic timing together on screen is always so fun. So Yeah, the, the hope 
uh, that I can keep alive in my heart is that, you know, Brandon is too good to write off of the show. He is so funny and he is so talented and they clearly make very good use of him. So I would be shocked if they really wrote him out completely in the same way that, you know, Lance, uh, by played by Josh Segarra, is in and out of Brooke's life over the course of the three seasons, but they never write Lance out off of the show because Lance is too fun and Josh Segarra is too good. And so I'm confident they'll find a way to keep Curtis in in the mix. But it it is very sad in a very funny way to watch Drew just ruin this relationship. And at the same time, uh, Brooke is ruining her relationship with Lance and uh, Molly Shannon, as uh, Pat, is ruining her relationship with uh, Streeter. They're, they're all, uh, although in that last one, perhaps they're, they're each a little guilty, uh, or it's just their lives are going in different directions. But the theme of this season is really watching these people either self-sabotage or get the thing they wanted and then kind of ruin it by their desire to want more or, or just their gnawing sense that that's not enough. Uh, and that is... Uh, both, again, kind of dark, kind of depressing, but really funny in a way that reminds me of uh, shows like Succession. Yeah. Easy to say. <laughs> not not easy to write. Easy to say, though. <laughs> yeah. And deeply human. So yeah. while they go to these absurd lengths, it, it does still feel grounded, which, yeah. There is I'm literally, so excited. There is literally an episode this season called Brooke, and we are not kidding here, goes to space. And I saw that episode title and I was like, okay, I believe it. I believe that if the episode is called Brooke and We Are Not Joking goes to space, then we are not joking. Brooke is going to space. Why? And what? And by the time we get to that episode, which is the last of the six episodes this season that we had a chance to watch before recording, um, it makes perfect sense. And it's it all, it's a satirical point about billionaires. And it hasn't jumped the shark. I keep thinking, you know, oh, space, that sounds a little bit, you know. I mean, it, it does implicate how reality has jumped the shark when, when I realize, uh, oh, it's about a Jeff Bezos type. Well, yeah, he goes to space. Oh. <laughs> oh. Exactly. He sure does. <laughs> that one, to end on a funny note, has a scene where she, the first man who takes her to space is a billionaire. She she demands to be set up on a date with a billionaire as she tries to rebound from um, truly destroying her wonderful relationship with Lance. Uh, and, of course, the billionaire is a total Jeff Bezos weirdo who takes her to space. So then she demands to go on a date with someone who's only a millionaire. And he is relatively normal by comparison until she goes to the bathroom and he gets a phone call that he is now officially a billionaire and he instantly turns into a total wacko who takes her to space. It is just, you know, it is cartoonish, but executed in a way that uh, just really balances the absurdity with the human of it all. And it's right on target in the satire, you know, yeah. punch that, up. That's, that's how you, yeah, that's how you nail... Uh, absurdist satire and make it feel earned and real in my mind is you 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 root it and then you punch up because that's where the David Zaslavs of the world are and uh, I can only hope they have a sense of humor for renewing both of these shows Clone High and the other two because I love them I love them I so do. much yeah get get watching guys 
Yeah, that's our instruction to you. Get watching and tell us what you think. Write to us, podcasterstreamageddon.com. Both of these shows are midway through their seasons, so there's plenty more to watch. Uh, one uh, last note I wanted to touch on with the other two. What do you think about the fact that the episodes this season are uh, about 30 minutes? They've, for the first time in their three seasons, embraced the streaming runtime. Which makes sense, because the first season was Comedy Central. The second season was originally greenlit by Comedy Central. So even though it was on HBO Max, they wrote the episodes to network length. This season, each episode's about 10 minutes longer than a standard one. But they, I feel like I'm getting more bang for my buck with them. Agreed. I think it's essentially a family show, and the family has has grown. So Streeter's yeah. on the family, Shuli's in the family, Curtis is in the family, Lance is in the family. So we can't just have stories about the four literal family members. Uh, we're keeping up with all these characters, so it feels important to me that all those threads get held. Uh, so I think it's earned it. I think it's earned the runtime. It doesn't feel bloated to me at all. Same. I, I feel the same way. I love that. And I love that we have a moment to talk about uh, families and stories and plots that are focused on perhaps four key members of a family. Because <laughs> uh, right after you listen to some jazzy outro music, we're going to reconvene for a quick chat about the finale of Succession. And yes, we're really going to do it right now. We are going to dish about the finale of Succession. Uh, Spoiler alert for the finale of Succession. You've been warned too many times. You rip the headphones out of your ears if you have to. Because yes, I was right. The Greg-ish character won. I said it. That is bananas. Okay, wait. Greg didn't win. Greg got a pay cut. Sure. But the, the most Greg character won, which is Tom. Uh, No, this is a stretch of logic. But uh, in fact, I remember days before the finale came out, texting with you and saying, hey, the Internet thinks Tom is going to win. Isn't that crazy? And we were both like, yeah, that's not what we think will happen. (laughs) So really, so Tom is, you know, the acting U.S. CEO. But Matson is in control. Matson wins. I was right. I I always knew Matson was going to buy the company, though. That wasn't a surprise. It was who's going to be in charge, quote unquote. And it's Matson. Part of the reason he has that dinner with Tom where he's saying, hey, I would like to fornicate with your wife. I'm trying to watch my language. <laughs> and Tom is like, yeah, you can do that. He's yes, saying, sir. I-, I wanted a puppet. And this yeah. person, when I say jump, will say how high. Tom's not in control. Well, this is my argument for why I think I got the Greg, the Gregest of the Gregs correct here, because my argument for Greg is that he's a huge yes man who will bend over backwards and say whatever needs to be said. But the twist is that Greg isn't good at that. And he tried to play too many hands. He tried to be too many men's yes man. Whereas Tom has always known there is only one the man who you say yes to at any given time. And it was Logan, obviously. And then when he realized that there was no more Logan to be the yes man to, he had to pivot hard. And, And I think the show did an excellent job of making us think that Tom was screwed beyond all belief for most of the season. 
Uh, and I, I do credit the people who realized that that was misdirection, so to speak. But yeah, the scene at the, the dinner where Madsen, uh, you know, politely suggests fornicating with Siobhan, uh, <laughs> that, that is the moment where I go, oh, this is the true yes man. Tom is the one who knows who you say yes to. And in the same final episodes, we see Greg screw it up by being a confidant to too many people and then essentially backstabbing Shiv by accident. Uh, or on purpose, but either way, you screwed up if you uh, re- if you get caught, basically, by the multiple parties who all realize, oh, you've been kind of betraying us to each other the whole time. That That doesn't work. He bet on Kendall Roy, which is a rookie mistake. Generally speaking, it is. As much as I love him. <laughs> uh, we, knew, we knew Kendall Roy would lose. Um, he didn't die. He nearly died. Oof. Rough. Um, have you been reading the stories about how in one of the takes, Jeremy Strong got up and attempted to jump into the water and the actor who plays Colin stopped him? It's not something that the creators encouraged him to do. It's a choice that Jeremy made as an actor, which um, really frightens me. And I think um, should spark a conversation about uh, the um, safety in in acting. Yeah. And, and, And on the absolute opposite, polar opposite end, now that the series is over... Logan himself uh, has said, I didn't watch any of the episodes after they killed me. He's in some of them. I know. (laughs) I know. One of the best scenes of the the end of the series is when the kids are watching the video of Logan's birthday party with Jerry and Frank and Carl. And Logan is going through this parlor trick he has of naming all of the vice presidents of America, like in order, in a rhyme, essentially. And it is such a tender, odd funny little scene that really humanized not just Logan, but but the idea that he had these friends, that Jerry and Carl and Frank, while perhaps none of them would admit it, were all his friends. Yeah, and those are the people he really had that close connection with and the... not his children. Yes, yes. But at the, at the same time, too, there's a bit of foreshadowing there because they're seeing him recite with such affection these losers on a grand scale, and the three of them are—I mean—are essentially the losers of yeah. the of the show. You know, um, uh, here's to the losers. Oh, I love um, it. And speaking of yeah, losers, so poignant like, and beautiful, like us for getting most of the predictions wrong. I'll admit it. Uh, oh no, <laughs> uh, I do have the rest of our. <clears throat> TV Tarot predictions from uh, earlier in the season. And uh, I'm going to run through them real quick. I want to see, do we think we did okay? Uh, The first one was, does Connor keep his 1% in the presidential race? I said no, though in hindsight, I don't know if I meant he gets more. I think I meant he gets more. Anyway, you said uh, yes. I said no. I'm going to give it to both of us. He did fine in the presidential race in that he was in it. And we don't know how the presidential race pans out. We really out don't. The they kind of, of the just show. toss so, that aside. And I really respect the choice to make it kind of a really important plot point until none of these characters cared anymore. Yikes. Ah! Uh, and then next, do Connor and Willa actually get married? Both of us, ding, ding, got it correct. They did in perhaps the sweetest moment of the season, which is a weird low bar, mm. but okay. Um, next, this one we both got wrong. Do Tom and Shiv actually get divorced? 
No. Shockingly. Shockingly. After that Emmy-winning argument on the balcony. (laughs) You're calling it now? I'm calling it now. Uh, Especially because Roman, uh, Kieran Culkin, moved himself to the best actor category from the best supporting actor category. So I feel like McFadden's really got an in there. I know you're not always into predicting awards, but I feel like we got it this year. I think, I think. Come on. Oh, I think yeah. we got it. Uh, speaking of predictions that I got wrong, do Roman and Jerry reunite? I, I, my heart said yes. My brain said no. I followed my heart. You were smarter than me. It was a no from you and a no, sadly, from Jerry. I did like that in that final scene in the bar, he drank her the martini, yeah. which is her drink. I thought that was oh nice, a yeah. nice little dig at the heart. This next one, I, I don't know uh, quite what the answer to this is. The question was, does Kendall's accidental manslaughter come back to haunt him, dot, 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 again? And the answer is no, but also they threw it out at him in the final argument. So maybe the answer is yes. I think the answer is yes. I think that his denial of that to his siblings um, shows not only like a reversal of all the um, human humanizing that he has done over over these seasons. Um, it also sh- shows Shiv in that moment. That this man cannot be con- counted can't. on. You can't give him the job. He's not I, reliable. You're actually you're very correct. That is yeah. the final nail in the coffin. For, for that. So I, I give that to you. You said yes. I said no. You get the point. Uh, this one, let's just both be embarrassed. Does, does Logan die was the question. And we very assuredly told you no, viewer, listener, whoever you are. I'm sorry. We led you astray. We're fools. We are. Bravo, Jesse. We're regular Roys. Just fools. <laughs> uh, and then finally, does anyone else die? We said no. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, that's correct. At least the body count was limited. Yeah, I think I, we, I thought I said yes, but no. Okay, great. I guess I wasn't wrong. <laughs> oh, I think no. I thought that there might be a proverbial death, and I think that there were some. Sure. But yeah, but no, no literal deaths, I guess, except for you know the big guy. The one. Uh, mm-hmm. Overall, we did terribly. You did slightly better than me, so I am uh, ready to congratulate you. Diane Nora, winner of the Succession TV Tarot Draft. Uh, what are you going to do now that you've won, Diane? I'm going to be so sad every Sunday for a really long time that I don't have new episodes of Succession to watch. Me too. We'll go be sad together, perhaps staring at a a lake with Kendall and his sad little bodyguard man. Maybe with some martinis. That I would do. If you'd like to join us for some proverbial martinis, you know where to find us right here. You can subscribe to Streamageddon wherever you get your podcasts. Tell a friend and we will see you again in your ears in two weeks here on Streamageddon. Keep streaming. Oh, we didn't say it. Yeah. It's like, what's that look on your face for? Okay. <laughs> or as Diane just reminded me, uh, we'll see you again, uh, you know, in two weeks when we have some time to <clears throat> keep, keep streaming. streaming. Uh, oh, that was on me. You won this one, Diane. You won this time. I'm a regular Wamsgams.
Writers, strike! This is one I am actually excited about because it's the movie about all the, like, uh, knockoff Marvel characters. Like, the guy who sort of almost became the new Captain America, but then became, like, Agent America. Mr. Agent Man.